And there we go, everyone. We are back again for another fantastic conversation on Friday Night Counter Attack. And this one is a big one because, unfortunately for me as a Manchester United fan, as you all know, Manchester City have won the treble. And I need to talk about this with someone from an objective point of view, someone who can actually break it down in terms of how big this success has been. We're also going to be talking about Jude Bellingham's alleged move to Real Madrid, being the most expensive English player of all time. And we're going to be talking with the great Henry Winter. So Henry, thank you very much for joining our podcast today. It's a pleasure to see you again, my friend. Um, I mean, we met a couple of months ago, which is really nice to see um, to meet in person, but it's really nice to see you again. How's everything going for you, your side? Yeah, really good. Thanks very much for inviting me on, Hamza. Yeah, no, good. Just got back from uh, Istanbul. Took uh, about three hours to leave the stadium. I think actually walking out the stadium uh, was about the same time as uh, the actual flight back from Istanbul because it's... I heard so many stories. Yeah, I heard so many stories so far out of the city of Istanbul as well compared to like the Besiktas Stadium or the Fenerbahce Stadium as well. So that must have been crazy for you as well. Were you amongst the Man City fans or was it amongst the yeah. press? Uh, it, no, no, it was absolutely with the, with the, with the City fans. But, mm. you know, but fortunately, they, they, were in a, they were in a good mood because they'd won. But yeah, it was ridiculous. I mean, it's, you know, you go to these European finals and you think that UEFA would learn from last year. Uh, obviously, it was completely different circumstances, completely different narrative to what happened to the Liverpool fans. Yeah. And that was really very, very scary. And that was a close one thing. I mean, there could have been deaths there in Paris because of the bad policing, the authorities, UEFA's, you know, UEFA, at least to be fair to them, had admitted their, you know, effectively their negligence. But, but, and, but this was on a different level. And again, it was arrogance by UEFA. Because a lot of them, they they get they either get to the game early or they get driven in. But you know, you got to start thinking about the fans more. There was a press release saying that you should get there at least around three p.m. when the game kicked off at ten p.m. local time, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean that's you know it's all very well coming out with a vice like that, but you've also then got to um, think. Well, you've chosen Istanbul; it's a brilliant town. The fans are in in town either at the fans' part or they're in Taksim Square or yep. they're exploring Istanbul, which for me is one of my top five, ten cities in the world. It's a brilliant city. I love but it. Then it's a fantastic to, city. You've 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 been. You know what the yeah. you know the culture is like. The people, in fact, you can't completely generalise, obviously, but the, you know the people are. A, a brilliant you know they they'll do anything to sort of help you and welcome you and occasionally try not to run you over I mean it's just crossing a road there is, is quite an experience it's very good for sprint training actually I went out for so a couple it's of an, it's an Olympic sport that's all I'm saying when you're crossing the road especially <laughs> by the Bosphorus as well it's crazy it Bosphorus down but it's so beautiful down there and the Sea of Marmara and all the, the history the Top Carpi Palace the Blue Mosque I mean I've fortunate to have been there a few times and every time I go it's I mean, my, my brother's an imam, so I quite like going and looking at the outside of mosques because I've sort of travelled around a bit with my brother and sort of looked at mosques and, you know, with, with big, a lot of architects in our family. So just looking at these buildings, I'm standing outside one of them and one of the sort of like the, the, the church, it's like the mosque officials came out and he obviously realised I wasn't a local man because I was standing there in my jogging gear sort of <laughs> panting away. I was actually trying to get regain my breath as well as look at the building and uh, so we had a little chat speak a little bit of Arabic um, we just had a chat but mainly about Galatasaray yeah and he was just so delighted he wanted to talk about Galatasaray and I mean I was pleased to be able to get my breath back but I still have to carry on working at some point but yeah just everything about the place 
is is great. So look, a good season to have it. They're probably going to have the the Euros in twenty thirty two because it looks like a straight fight between Great Britain and Ireland and Spain for twenty eight. But the Ataturk is a final stadium. It's out of town. And it's difficult to get to even with a metro extension. I mean, it was worse in 2005. Really? But also, oh, you're, you're, you're far from the pitch. You know, it's just one of those, okay, they've done it nicely and they put a carpet on it, but you're still, you're a long way from the pitch. Olympic-style so, stadiums, yeah, with the totally, round tracks. Mm. Totally, yeah. I mean, it's now the Ataturk Olympic Stadium. So let's, let's think a little bit more of the fans. It needs to be done, because when you're seeing, uh, like for me, for example, when I went to watch Hertha Berlin versus... Uh, by Leverkusen back in September. That was at the Olympic Stadion in Germany, in Berlin. So I'm just kind of there, like that's the first experience I've ever had going to like watch a game at an Olympic-style stadium. And it was just such a, it was an odd feeling because you're looking at it and you're like, the fans are so far away. You've got these um, barriers in front of you. So it's like you're almost in a cage in a sense. And it's like, it's a very odd feeling. And this is kind of normalized around Europe as well when you're thinking about it. You've seen that in Italy with the Stadio Olimpico. In Rome, you see the Ataturk Stadium as well. It's crazy to think about how it's quite common still in in European football, which is mad. The, the, the Berlin Stadium is extraordinary. I mean, whenever I go there, I just think of Hitler standing at one end watching Jesse Owens win his four goals. Yeah, and the look, the, the, the look on Hitler's face. I mean, it is. I, I agree with you. But it's it's just. But there's to say. I mean, I was at school in Germany for a bit, and from what I remember, is that it is a it is an offence to obviously it's an offence to deny the Holocaust. And if you deny, if you change some of the insignia, so there's the famous bell outside. You probably saw it when you went in to watch um, Berlin. Yeah, and the bell has got Nazi insignia on it, and apparently you're not allowed. And the fact that I'm pretty sure there's Nazi insignia embedded actually in the, the walls of the stadium itself. But to remove them would be to deny the Holocaust. I might have got the law wrong, but it is you're very aware when you're in that stadium of the history of the stadium. And it must have been an electric atmosphere when Jesse Owens was winning his four goals in the home of Aryan supremacy. You know, what to two fingers that would have been. What a story. Can you imagine social media now covering that? So, yeah, an extraordinary stadium. No, it's an extraordinary story as well. For people who are listening who don't know what it is, just honestly, just research it, YouTube it. Um, it's priceless, especially the award ceremony as well. Um, having the national anthem of the USA as well, that was an incredible moment. Um, looking back, he on stayed it, friends. He stayed friends with the the sort of the symbol of af- athletic Aryanism, um, and they stayed friends. And there was such respect between the two of them. But then, of course, Jesse Owens went back to America and he wasn't properly treated and, you know, there was segregation there and he ended up running against horses for money. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, as you say, sort of, you know, have a look at the story. Jesse Owens' story is extraordinary. Absolutely is. We can't even downplay how extraordinary it was back in the day as well, which is crazy. Um, but no, thank you for that as well. It's really nice to hear your point of view from the Atatürk Stadium in Istanbul. Now we've got a focus on what happened on the pitch um, on Saturday night as well. So you're obviously watching the game. You're obviously covering the game as well. You've come out with a piece this morning, which I was reading before about um, the Barnsley Busquets, John Stones. I want to hear a bit more about that and how you found it watching John Stones in person um, in a Champions League final and how composed he was on the ball. How did that kind of work for him moving from a centre-back to a defensive midfielder, kind of dictating the play and getting involved in the attacks as well, from your the, point of view, Henry? The, the, there's, there's so many issues here because we've tended to pigeonhole English players, particularly English 
defenders and say, right, almost sustain that. I remember when Rio Ferdinand, you know, the skill he had, and he was always told not to cross the halfway line. Yeah. And now, because of the enlightenment, the enlightenment of managers like Pep, English players, well, all players, are just bringing more facets out of their game. And to be fair to, you know, if you go back to his days in the Barnsley Academy, in the under-16s, I think it was, he was playing in midfield. He actually started out by playing up front, as a lot of players do scoring goals because he had the ability and then dropping back into midfield and then dropping back into defence. Yeah. But just to see what he's doing now, you know, it's just, and the journey that he's been on, I mean, it's a horrible word journey, but it is an extraordinary journey that, that he's been on. I can remember in the under-21s when he got concussed before a game and he couldn't play the first two games. He was so keen to represent England, albeit under-21s for the first time. And I, I met his parents there and you could just see them, you know, concerned for him as a, as a son, and, you know, concussion is a serious issue and we take it even more seriously now. Definitely. Uh, and then just to see his, the way he had his move, you know, he stepped from Barnsley into Everton. Even when he was injured at Everton, he was doing his community work. He got community player of the year. He's always been a very conscientious individual. So I've, I've always liked John as a, obviously as a player, but also as an individual. I've been lucky to, to interview him a few times down the years. Yeah. And he's, he's just one of the good guys. Um, so... And then he had issues. I'm not really interested in his private life. It's his own business. I don't really know what went on, but I kind of got the impression something was happening to him because you saw these tattoos beginning to sort of creep down his arms and onto his legs. And that's not always a sign of, you know, people do it to as a celebration, but there was obviously something going on in his life. So, and that I think distracted him. He was on the bench in certain games. And now look at him because of his own hard work, because of the support of his family and because of the inspired poaching of Pep. You know, he's now a champion of Europe. And yeah. you just hope that, well, he does play centre-half for England, which he will do alongside Maguire, that when he gets that opportunity, he can step into midfield and just bring another facet to England's game. Is John Stones the best centre-back you've seen since John Terry and Rio Ferdinand for England? Oof. I mean, Sol Campbell, outstanding. Ledley King, Stop. I would, I, I appreciate. Yeah, Ledley well. King. I mean, Ledley was unfortunate because he had his injuries, but Ledley could also play in midfield, so he, he obviously had that ability on the ball. I, I would absolutely put John Stones up there. I mean, I, it's yeah, absolutely. I mean, John Stones got sixty-six caps for England. I mean, he'll probably what's he twenty-nine now? He'll probably get another thirty. Yeah. You know, he could be touching a hundred. You know, that's just phenomenal what he's achieving. So. Yeah, I would say he's one. But he, he's now in an era where he is encouraged to it. So if Rio Ferdinand was playing in this year and Rio Ferdinand was 29, he would be dropping a shoulder in the field. So, yeah, I mean, he's just got, first it's the era and secondly, it's the coach he's got in Pep that's encouraging him. Yeah, improving everyone through their individual differences when you're seeing it on the pitch as well. You're seeing how yeah. Bernardo Silva has been playing in multiple positions under Pep Guardiola and he reverts back to his natural right wing for the Champions League final. So it goes to show wherever he was needed in the season, left back, left centre mid, right centre mid, attacking mid, right wing. Bernardo was playing in his natural position for the final as well, which was incredible. Um, and it's really good to see how well I, I don't know if it, from my point of view, from watching it on BT Sport at home, there was a big thing about Kyle Walker missing out in the final, but he came on as a sub and looked perfectly fine working as a sub because Akanji, who was starting as a, as opposed to, um, as opposed to Kyle Walker, right back or right centre back, I should say, had a blinding game. Besides that kind of mistake he had where Edison and Akanji yeah. had that miscommunication, I thought he did pretty well. And it was a really good signing from Pep Guardiola 
around 15, 16 million pounds from Borussia Dortmund. But where do you kind of see Manchester City kind of improving their squad? Because as you know, Pep Guardiola <laughs> always improves. Where could you find one position in this Man City side where you think, you know what, they will look to buy someone in this position next season? It depends where they lose Gundogan. I, yeah. I mean, I hope he stays because I think this team, particularly with a file at Wembley next year, I think they've probably got another Champions League in them. So yeah. why leave now? <laughs> um, if Gundogan goes, I'll probably need another central midfielder. They might look at a left back. But, you know, Nathan Aki, okay, he's a centre-half, but he's been outstanding. I mean, I had him as my left-back, uh, you know, in the team of the season that I did because uh, yeah. I just thought he's, he's he's been fantastic. He's developed his game. He's not simply brilliant one-on-one, that almost limpet-like marking. But I think his delivery down the line to Grealish, those sort of whip balls with a bit of fade on them just to sort of take it into Grealish's path, I think that's been a real addition to uh, to, to City's game. Um, possibly left-back. Um Centre halves, they've got. You imagine Laporte and leaves. If you're Laporte, you want to move on and and play more regularly, particularly in the European Championship year. Um, but yeah, uh, do they need another centre forward? I mean, Alvarez obviously can play slightly deeper, but he can also play up top. Shown that. I mean, they're just going to get better. I mean, Holland's semi-finals and finals. I thought his his performance. He was just totally selfless. Mm. You know, people say, well, he didn't score. Well, you know, he's not been short of goals this season. So I don't think that's the criticism that can be levelled at him. But against Real Madrid, the tough Real Madrid defence, particularly Rudiger in the first game, and then this very good Italian defence into Milan's defence. But he just the work that he put in, closing down, a little bit running down the clock late on as well, some challenges that he made, always showing for the ball. You know, I thought he's been excellent and he'll be even better next season. I mean, if he goes to scores in the final next year, I don't think anyone will be surprised. Yeah, I don't blame it as well because when you're looking at Erling Haaland, kind of from where he was last season at Borussia Dortmund, kind of going into this Manchester City side, even he said after the game, he's learned so much in this one year and he's only 22 years old. So imagine him at 25 years old where he can learn to hold the ball off even more, if he can learn to distract defenders even more by off the ball runs, running in behind and for me personally, kind of using his right foot a lot more as well, because mm-hmm. his left foot is like a jackhammer, really. When you're when you're looking at how he just continuously shoots the ball on target, low, driven, a lot of power. When he does that with his right foot, I think that's going to be game over for a lot of teams in the Premier League and across Europe as well, um, for Erling Haaland as well. But where do you kind of rank this Manchester City side? The obvious question, of course, is is it does it eclipse the Sir Alex Ferguson nineteen ninety nine Manchester United um treble? Does it even eclipse the Celtic one? way back when, um, I think in the 1960s it was as well, or is this just its own achievement in itself uh, from Pep Guardiola and Manchester City? I mean, you, you celebrate this team for what they're doing in this era. You yeah. celebrate United's 99 treble winning team, just as you celebrate the Liverpool 83-84 team, which won the European Cup against Roma in Roma's backyard in one of the most his- hospitable, sorry, inhospitable uh, environments imaginable. And they had the nerve to win it in a shootout. And they had players like Dalglish and Souness. You know, they were, they were absolutely outstanding team. <laughs> I would put those three are probably the, um, the you know, the, the, the greatest in, I mean, with respect to the Lisbon Lions, just in English history, I would go Liverpool 84, United 99. And uh, the, the, this Manchester City team is the three greatest. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing about City is they want to do it again. So they've got, what, five titles under Pep, Champions League. They want another Champions League. 
definitely. You know? So, um, yeah, but look, how fortunate are we that there is this quality of football? That, you know, every week in the Premier yeah, League. Every week in the Premier League. I mean, Arsenal would have been worthy champions in another year. Saliba got injured, which was unfortunate. You know, you know, next season, you think Liverpool with that McAllister's a good signing. They'll they will go again. Chelsea, you know, a mistake in appointing Potter. They've now got a good coach in Pochettino who can handle all the sort of pressure and knows how to deal with it. And they they will come good again because they've got some good players. Manchester United got an exceptional manager in Eric Ten Hag. So we you know we're incredibly fortunate with the football that we are seeing and intensity and maybe they will take some points off Manchester City but it's going to be but look Brentford did how well did Brentford play against Manchester City so in both games as well home and both games as well home and away yeah absolutely so um, maybe that's the way to do it just um, three at the back but you know Inter Milan had two up front and maybe that's the, the way to go you know sort of 5-3-2, 3-5-2 5-3-2, 3-5-2 against City. I mean, people will take points off City. They're not going to be totally uh, invincible. But again, I think they're in like 8-1 for the treble for next season. It's looking good for them, especially with the way that they've just finished the season. And, and they finished it in style. I mean, the FA Cup win, they barely got out of second gear. They were more challenging that Inter Milan game, from my ex- um, opinion, compared to the Manchester United game at Wembley, unfortunately. So it's, it's one of those where you're looking at someone like Onana at the back, who was kind of dictating the... The the attacking away for some for some points from Inter Milan. Obviously, having a ball playing goalkeeper has been a big thing, and it was kind of I'm not going to say started, but in the Premier League, you would see a lot. You saw it more from when Pep Guardiola got rid of Joe Hart, brought in Claudio Bravo. That didn't really work out for the first time. Then he replaced Bravo with Edison within a season or two. And now most managers nowadays are looking for ball playing goalkeepers, and that's something that was envisioned by Pep Guardiola, like you mentioned earlier, with his. With his vision in, in football, what he wants to do, it's kind of being, in a way, copied and emulated by other managers across Europe and the Premier League as well. Is there anything that, do you think anyone can kind of eclipse this kind of formation that they've got with Pep Guardiola with the 3 2 four, one Do you reckon anyone will try and copy that from Pep Guardiola or just going to stick oh. to that? I mean, watching Trent Alexander Arnold at the King Power, Liverpool yep. against Leicester. He was stepping into midfield and from right back, so the inverted fullbacks are being used. Arsenal have used it with with Zinchenko. Uh, personally, I think so. Guardiola's influence on the game, and not simply at elite level, but at all levels. You know, I mean, if I go and watch my local non-league team who are like eighth, ninth tier, you know, there will be elements and echoes of what Pep's been achieving <laughs> with the way they're trying to, to to play in terms of building out more from the back more fluid with the two amongst players. I actually think probably one of the few things that, well, the only cloud on the horizon is the 115 charges yes. for alleged financial breaches. That's something that they'll have to address at some point. They'll have good lawyers. They feel they've done nothing wrong. But I think that's really the only cloud on the horizon on the pitch. doesn't look like this much that can stop City. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what the outcome is because apparently it could take years um, for them to actually Which is go ridiculous. Through. Which is absolutely ridiculous. They, they should be able to do it this summer. Unfortunately, there's so many charges that they have to present a case for each of them. What they should do is just have five sample charges and then effectively be guided by that. Either have a punishment for that or and then maybe do other charges or just call it a day. But they've absolutely got to do it quickly. It's absolutely pointless doing this in two, three years' time. Um, it has to be done now, anyway. It I would say so it's, as well. It's, it's, it's not in the lawyer's interest for something to be done quickly. Yes, 
drag it out as much as possible. You learn that from watching Suits. If you're watching Suits on Netflix, <laughs> you definitely see that as well. Um, and Daredevil as well from my my own fan, Marvel fanboy in me, which is quite good as well. Um, another person I'm a big fan of is Jude Bellingham. So there are there are talks that he has agreed a deal with Real Madrid to become the most expensive English player of all time, eclipsing Jack Grealish, who moved two summers ago um, to Manchester City from Aston Villa. That's actually mad. The two most expensive English players of all time are from Birmingham. That's actually that's actually quite cool, actually. Um, but I wanted to know your kind of thoughts on Jude Bellingham moving to Real Madrid. Where do you think he would fit into this Real Madrid system? Uh, Carlo Ancelotti is looking at one more year, allegedly, um, at Real Madrid. Where do you think he can kind of flourish in this Real Madrid side from what you've seen for England and what you've seen for him at rather Birmingham or Bruce Dortmund? You could put Jude Bellingham in any team, probably in any position, and he would do well. He's got the right mentality. He's got the technique. He's got that personal confidence to take the ball under pressure. He can distribute it. He's got good people around him off the pitch. He seems a very, I've not interviewed him, but he seems a very sort of sensible, down-to-earth individual. You see little things around the England camp, England training, where say Bellingham is waiting to do an interview you know he's not sort of fidgeting or whatever he's not sort of you know I'm the big I am you know get me on now you know he'll have a chat to a steward I remember at Wembley once he was just not that long ago he was just waiting to go and do sort of Sky or BBC or whoever after the match and he just waited very patiently and there was a, a steward near the tunnel who he was just chatting to just perfectly respectful very respectful and so look he's just a good character Football-wise, he's going all the way to the top. I mean, he's he's well on the way already. In terms of how he will fit in with Real Madrid, he likes pressure and he'll get pressure there. He'll be playing alongside Modric probably for another year, then Modric may move on, Cruz as well. But you look at the other players they've got in there, you know, Camavinga, Chiromeni. I know um, uh, Camavinga's been playing at fullback, hasn't he? But so yeah. he can sort of, but he, he, he can play in there. Valverde as well, whether he plays wide or tucked in as well. You know, Vinicius is young. And, um, absolutely. I mean, I think it's sad from a Premier League perspective. I would love to have seen him at Liverpool. I just think he would have gone in there. He would have been absolutely loved. He would have been a complete hero. The He's exactly... I mean, McAllister would do well, but to have a box-to-box, an eight of... Um, of Bellingham's quality would have been good there. But look, how fortunate England, you know, you talk about Grealish, you talk about Bellingham, you know, how much talent have England got? It's fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking at it now and I was thinking a couple of years ago when we are at the European Championships, a lot of these players who were on the bench and barely got any game time in the home European Championships are now thriving. You're seeing Bukayo Saka who came later on in the tournament becoming a starter, um, becoming the main man at Arsenal this season and last season. You're seeing Jack Grealish becoming more of an all-rounded attacking winger under Pep Guardiola this season compared to last season. And obviously Jude Bellingham taking Bruce Dortmund within literally goal difference of their first Bundesliga win since 2012 or 2013, I think it was, um, which was crazy. So it goes to show the talent that England have is ridiculous. And I'm really looking forward to this new international camp that they've got coming up, especially the game against North Macedonia at home. You've got someone like um, Eze from Crystal Palace, who I've quite enjoyed watching this season. What's your thoughts on how Gareth Southgate will take this England team forward um, throughout the summer? Do you reckon it will introduce new players or will stick to kind of the players he's got? Because we've seen the squad, we've seen there's some new players, but do you reckon he'll rotate given the, the freedom he's kind of got against North Macedonia? And I think Malta we've got as well. I think he will rotate, certainly for the second one. Yeah. Um, because these players have had a crazy long season and they're going into another season 
uh, which climaxes with the European Championship finals in Berlin, which we were talking about. Yep. Um, so he wants them to be in the best shape. And if he can eke out a little bit more holiday time for them, it's vital because, you know, you look at De Bruyne. De Bruyne says he's been carrying a hamstring for the last two months, and yet he's carried on playing because he's a professional because they've needed him. But FIFPRO, who the Global Players Union, came out with a report while we were in Istanbul. <laughs> And 43% of the World Cup players surveyed said that they were basically running on fumes. And so we're going to get more injuries. And we wouldn't do this with horses in terms of demanding the players play and play and play. The season in terms of the workload now is crazy with the extra tournament. <laughs> there was one amazing statistic that Rodri's played in nine separate tournaments in the past year. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. The world. I know they get well paid, they get well looked after, they've got as you know, the best dietitians, the best sports scientists, the best conditioning people. I get all that, but it's still, it's still a human body, and, and it it's more take... than ever as well. Nine competitions yeah. a year is insane. Pedri had that in his first yeah. season at Barcelona. I think he finished the Euros and when they finished in the semi-finals and went straight to the Olympic team. I think like a month later when they're playing in Tokyo in 2021. So it goes to show that even though footballers are used to having the best recovery. It's still not what they're used to, even from around five years ago, since obviously pre-pandemic, when you've got all this kind of catch-up in modern football to catch up with and the, and the games that keep coming thick and fast, which is absolutely insane. I um, mean, just on Bellingham, you mentioned Bellingham. Bellingham's played at 19. He's played almost 20 times as many minutes as David Beckham played at his age. Yeah, which is wild. The Always starting one, as well. Absolutely. I mean, Michael Owen played summer after summer for the England age groups and then it took its toll on his body you know so and, and Bellingham's played even more than, than Michael had at his age would so, you say that yeah. happened with Deli Ali as well because again when he burst onto the scene um, for Spurs he was straight into the England side as well and then he felt I think he came up with a quote saying ah oh, my body feels around 30 years old and then ever since he's kind of moved away from Tottenham we've not really seen anything of him from a footballing sense but it goes to show that he's not really there in terms of physically playing all the time for Besiktas or for Everton when he's playing. Is that a big cause in burnout, really, because of the amount of games and the pressure going through modern football? Deli's issue is mental, not physical. Okay. Like, physically, I think he's, he's, he's fine. He can play. I just think he fell out of love with the game. I think there was an element of distractions. And it's so sad because I remember meeting him for the first time as a 16-year-old MK Don. So I was in Carl yeah. Robinson's office. And Delhi just happened to walk past and Carl said, oh, Delhi, come in and meet this guy. He might mean nothing to you, but he covers England and you'll be playing for England one day. And you just knew, <clears throat> I knew meeting Delhi then at 16, that all the hype, that he, would, he was absolutely going to the top. But, you know, it's about having a good support structure around you. And Delhi came from a difficult background. He's got a, a, sort, of like a sort of second family in a way who sort of tried to look after him. But... You know, I remember talking to Patrick Bamford when he was at Middlesbrough and he would, if he was in London or whatever, he would drive and he was driving up to Middlesbrough. He would go via Milton Keynes just to see Delhi was eating okay and making an omelette and then get back in his car and sort of carry on up. Yeah. So there's a, so much love for Delhi. I mean, you know, World Cup semi-final, you know, he was, he was there. He was such an important part of England's journey in, in Russia. So I just hope that he does come good. He does regain his love for football again whether Besiktas necessarily was the right place. I don't know, but I would love to maybe Belgium or somewhere and just rekindle that love 
and get back playing again. Because he's only, what, I think he's only, what, 28 or so, 27, 28. He's got another 20, five yeah, years ahead of him. 25, 26. He's got a yeah. lot of time left in him, which would be good yeah. to see how well he does. It's the same with Jesse Lingard as well. Um, with Jesse Lingard, uh, again, me as a Man United fan, I I was there, fortunately, when he had his little purple patch under yeah. Jose Mourinho. So scoring that winning goal against Chelsea, always coming up with the goods in that kind of 17-18 season. Then we see him barely getting a game, unfortunately, um, for Nottingham Forest and now leaving as a free agent after being one of their highest paid players. Now looking for a new club, potentially could go around Europe as well. But the same thing kind of happened with Jesse Lingard, which is not really the same as Deli Ali, but is it more of a mental thing? Because he came out with that Stephen Bartlett interview. He came out with his Channel 4 documentary as well. Was that more of a mental thing as well, do you think, from yeah. Deli Ali's point of view? In terms of Jesse Lingard, he's just got to refocus. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a decent player in there, but I don't think there's necessarily the the, the deep love in the game for Jesse Lingard as there is for Deli Ali. Everyone yeah. wants Deli Ali to get back playing again because we saw what he could do with England. Jesse Lingard's not elite quality. I mean, he's a, he's a good player, as you say, he's scored goals in big games, but I I think the loss to football of Deli Ali not playing is bigger than the loss to football of. Jesse Lingard not playing. Definitely. Because with me, growing up, there's so many players that I thought would have done really, really well, not just for England, but even just in, in football as well. So one of my biggest things, and I think you would know as well, obviously the injury to Ronaldo Nazario, Ronaldo R9, everyone from kind of my generation who got to watch him, who got to appreciate him, has always said he's the greatest number nine we've ever seen. Barring his injuries, he could have scored a lot more. He would have been playing a lot more as well. Um We've seen a lot more like that. Have you got any players in your mind that you think, you know what, if they weren't injured or if they didn't have any issues mentally, they could have gone right to the very top and stayed at the very top for a longer period of time? Well, I mean, Ronaldo did play at the top and he did. I mean, he's you couldn't say that he had an unfulfilled career. No. Uh, one, one of my great moments of the, or favourite moments of the World Cup in Qatar was playing paddle on the court next to his yeah. in <laughs> the Waldorf Astoria in... Um, and he was brilliant. And he just, he didn't need to move. He just stayed and he controlled the game and he just sort of pinged the ball around. It was great. And, it, you know, he's one of those individuals who enjoys life as well. So, yeah, Ronaldo's, Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo is one of the, uh, the, the, the greats. Yeah, I think sometimes footballers do fall out of love with the game. I sometimes, not worry, because it's his own business, his own career, but I look at mm. Ben White at Arsenal, England, and I think that's a fantastic player. He's athletic, he's decent on the ball, he's good in the air. He's, he should make a very good right-sided centre-half. I know he's been filling in at right-back for Arsenal and doing a good job there. <laughs> but I just wonder how much he genuinely loves the game yeah. and whether he... You know, I often think when I look at Ben White, is it a job for you or is it a passion? You know, um, But yeah, there's someone, someone like him who's got so much ability, um, I personally think we're going to see a lot more players coming out like that saying, yeah, football's more of a job because there was a time when Ben Wattasu Okoto said that, I think on a BBC yeah. interview, saying, oh, I see football just as a career. I don't see it as a love or a passion. And everyone's like, oh, okay, so he's one of the first to kind of do it in England to say it publicly on, in like mainstream media. Then Ben White said it. I feel like we're going to see a lot more people coming through saying, yeah, it's just a job for me. Um, it, obviously, they'll post their social media things to try to make them feel more loved and appreciated but I think we'll see a lot more of people saying things like that a lot more younger players a lot more players who um, go to different clubs not for the love of the game but mostly for the money or just for the appeal of certain clubs as well I think we saw that at Manchester United under Ed Woodward from what I can see a lot of these players 
didn't really come and show their the greatest talents, their greatest moments at Manchester United. They came for the money to get a quick payday. And when you've seen them leave, they've rather gone on to carry on playing the the, the quality that they were. Angel Di Maria, prime example um, for me as well. Um, that's kind of how I've seen it from my point of view. And then you can kind of see the players who kind of stayed grinded and tried to make it the best that they possibly could, but wasn't the case, unfortunately, um, for Manchester United to get the best out of some of these deals under Ed Woodward. Um, but I have to talk about Manchester United with you, Henry, as well, being a Manchester United fan. I want to know kind of your thoughts on this whole takeover situation. I want to know your thoughts on where you think the Glazers are going to take this. Are they going to drag out the whole summer? And where do you think the preferred bidder is going to be um, from your point of view? I mean, the moment a story becomes a saga, I tend to roll my eyes. I just think it's it's ridiculous. And I mean, I went to see Ten Hag the other day and I just said, look, is it delaying your transfer plans? And he was sort of very diplomatic, but it it cannot help because he doesn't know the size of the budget, who's going to sign off the checks. And it is impinging Manchester United's footballing development. Um Having spent a lot of time criticising Qatar up to the World Cup, it would be slightly hypocritical if I then said, oh, I want Sheikh Jassim to, uh, to to come in. <laughs> Excuse me, they say he's a he's a huge football fan, but, well, I don't know. I mean, he didn't turn up when um, the bidders were being shown around. Jim Ratcliffe, I mean, I have issues with his bid in terms of the Glazers still involved. I didn't understand why such an intelligent man and someone who supposedly understands the Manchester United community and fan community would countenance having a bid that still involved the Glazers. Yep. I mean, you know, open your ears on match days. You can hear enough songs about the Glazers. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So, yeah, I just wish they would they would get it done. I would rather it was Jim Ratcliffe because I just feel that there is someone who does understand the club, despite his his Glazer mistake, um, is from the area. Um, but, you know, there are issues with Ineos and I don't know. I just wish they would hurry up and get it done. Um, Every Friday but, just feels like the deadline and it's never the deadline because there's always a bid and there's always delays and yeah. everything so it's been very frustrating from a fan's point of view as well and obviously in the media you can probably sense it as well in terms of like you said turning into a saga more than a story so it must have been very frustrating to be like oh this is the week it's not the week this could be the week it's not the week at all and it just continues and continues and continues um, to be delayed by the Glazers and by the bidding process as well and um, by rain yeah that's true. Reigns group as well. It's not, it's not what we're looking for going forward. Um, but no, thank you very much for that. One last question before we finish off the podcast. Actually, before I move on to the next topic, sorry. Um, Christian Purser, Aston Villa, my co-host Salim, who couldn't make it today. Big Aston Villa fan. He wanted to kind of know where you think Aston Villa will kind of go from here. Recently qualifying for the Euro for, for Conference League. Christian Purser, a big man and a big reason for Aston Villa's recent success. Um, obviously getting promoted back from um, the championship to the Premier League, getting to their first cup final since 2010, I believe, when they were playing against Manchester City. And the big thing as well is that when they were in ad- administration, nearly getting into, was it liquidation or bankruptcy? Christian Perso coming in and saving the day, 11th hour. What's your kind of process on on Aston Villa? What, what do you kind of think is going to happen with them? Do you think they're going to continue being at a really top level moving forward under Unai Emery or doesn't really matter so far in terms of what's going to happen with Christian Persson? I think they'll do well in Europe next season because they've got Unai Emery, who's a master at doing well in Europe. Yeah, I think if you go to Aston Villa now, there's a buzz back about the place. 
<laughs> with Unai Emery doing well the whole term. The whole place is just, there's a real good feel-good factor there. So, yeah, I, th- I mean, Perslow is a loss because commercially he was very good. He got on with the players. He negotiated the deals. You know, he got good money for, for, for Grealish. Um, <laughs> and he was a, he's an elite Champions League level official. Um, you know, at at Villa, and they need him. I understand they want to sort of almost sort of streamline the process between the new director of football and the board. Um, but Perslow knows football; he's been around it. He knows that where they will they will also miss him is in Premier League meetings because yes. Perslow was very cute there. He knew he got on with people. He knew a lot of them, having worked at other clubs. Um, he knew where the dangers lay and lie in advance. So I think Villa might sort of, you know, slip down a bit in terms of their influence within the Premier League, having lost Perslow. And I can't imagine, it has been there five years, I can't imagine it'll be too long until he actually um, crops up at another elite club. I would say so as well. It's, it's definitely proven what you can do at Aston Villa, going from literally where they were trying to get rid of their owners, trying to get rid of their backroom staff as well, their players they didn't have the relationship with. Remember that season in the championship when they had Steve Bruce as manager and he had to go mid-season and he was going on, oh yeah, they're not going to go anywhere. And then Dean Smith took over. I think Perzo was in that season, that 18-19 season. And then he just came in and then it just they went off to the playoffs. I remember going to one of the games with Salem, um, who's not here at the moment, went to watch Derby versus Aston Villa and Aston Villa won 4-0. And in that game, you had Jack Grealish scoring an absolute worldie from outside the box from a corner volley. You had Mason Mount playing. You had Harry Wilson playing. You had Frank Lampard coaching. John Terry coaching for Aston Villa. And you had Ashley Cole, I think, playing for Derby County as well. So you had a big... And Tammy Abraham playing for Aston Villa as well. So you had big stakes in the championship at the time for Aston Villa. And that's what Aston Villa have kind of done recently, always up in their stakes and making sure they're building. And that's definitely credit to Christian Perslow and what he's done at Aston Villa as well. Um, which is great to see. Right, Henry. So we've done all the football talk. Um, now I've got to ask all about you. Obviously, it's not every day we have one of the biggest writers in world football, let alone English football, over the last 20 years. I'm going to ask you three different questions at three different times. So the first one is your best three moments in your career. So rather interviewing a player or a manager, meeting one of your childhood heroes, anything like that. Um, I'm all Liz. Let's hear it, Henry. I mean, I don't really have, you know, I didn't really have childhood heroes. I just have huge respect for players, for anyone who's got to the top of their profession, particularly in something as competitive as professional football. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the setbacks they've had along the way, the threat of injury, the, you know, the difficulties for, for a lot of the, uh, the younger players actually getting to training, you know, particularly their parents split up. Maybe one of them didn't drive. You know, you talk to Marcus Rashford and the whole, um, free school meals. So, in terms of the individuals, uh, I, so I'm not. I don't get in awe of them. I'm not. That's. I'm not like that as a person. I don't idolize them. I don't get awestruck when I meet people. But just, I do have that huge respect. So, I would put Marcus Rashford up there for yep. what he's done on the pitch. I think he's been absolutely. You know, he, he's been superb. What a player was it? Thirty goals this season. Yeah, and highest then, ever. Uh, yeah, and then you you look at what he's done off the pitch. I mean, he's, it's funny because I was talking to some people around Boris Johnson in, in in Westminster during that period, and they were saying, "Why is this footballer? Does he really think he can beat 
the prime minister. And I said, look, there's only, <laughs> I'm trying to make a joke out, there's only number 10 is going to win this. And it's not <laughs> going to be the one with the number on the front door. It, because oh, because of that. Marcus's, you know, Marcus was, was on a mission. He'd experienced it. His amazing mother, Melanie, would be crying herself to sleep at night because she had three jobs and she was still trying to get the money um, to, to, to feed, to feed the three, three kids. And so, so Marcus Rashford, absolutely having been privileged to interview him on a couple of occasions and he's just, and then to see how he's come back from the racist abuse that he's received after at least two finals, one for club, one for country. And I got shown some of the messages that he got sent and it is just, it's just so disgusting and so disgraceful, and my admiration goes out to him even more on the fact that he was able to focus and play on. And the same with 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 Jaden Sancho and Bukayo Saka. You know, for, for huge credit to to them. Um, so definitely, Max um, Pele was always brilliant to interview because wow. even if you found a quiet place and the organisers had been the organisers had set it up, and you found found a quiet place in a quiet corner of a quiet hotel, in a quiet town, in a quiet city, within five minutes, the circus would arrive. Mm. And there would be, you know, people go, that's Pelé. And people warmed to Pelé because of what a brilliant football he was, but also because he's just one of the loveliest people. Yeah, It's it's sad to speak about him, you know, in the past tense, because Pelé's just one of, you know, he's an absolute legend as an individual played in Brazil at a very difficult political time with the military and a huge admiration for diplomatically how he dealt with that. Um, yeah, just one of the real characters as well. I mean, there wasn't massive football insight because obviously, you know, we saw juggling languages and all that, but just the warmth. I mean, every word from Pelé, you felt you didn't really want to join up in a sentence. You wanted to sort of put each of them on a shelf individually because it was a word from Pele. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely loved that. And I would say in terms of privilege, in terms of interviews and certainly the most humbling interview I've ever done is Jenny Hicks, who lost her wow. two daughters at Hillsborough. And that was one of those interviews you come out and you sit in the car and you check. I would take two tapes in. I downloaded uh, one of the tapes. I then emailed the, the sound file to me, so I just I knew I got that, so I could relax. And then I just looked at myself and I said, "Don't screw this interview up. Do you know? Just get everything right, every word right, every sentiment right." And it was a very long interview. Then it's about two and a half thousand words, and the Times were fantastic on it. Yeah. And the Times actually said to me. Um, they never interfere. They're brilliant. I've been very fortunate with people I've worked for, but they've never, ever interfered. But they did suggest one thing. They said at some point in the piece, it went into just desperately personal issues. And they said, you're just going to have to almost step out of the piece and warn the readers that they're about to read something shocking. And I thought that was really good advice because it was, because it would have just hit you um, if there hadn't been that sort of warning in a way. So I felt honoured that she sort of trusted me to sort of tell her tell her story again. Obviously, she told it to other people, but yeah. So I would definitely mention those three. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a really broad way of talking about um, your career as well, and that's why I wanted to ask in the next question: the importance of literally authenticity in football media as well. We're seeing a a kind of wave in tabloid media and social media in terms of oh, we want to get information out there quickly. 
but it's not always accurate and it's sometimes falsified just to try and get a story and get a soundbite and get a grab of of something but it's not always true especially when you're reading like the times or the athletic when you've got proper establishments actually going through facts and double checking facts and triple checking their sources as well which is what is kind of still needed and will always be needed in my opinion in media let alone just football media as well but from your point of view with how you've seen football media change over the years how important is it to continue to have that authenticity in what you're writing and what you're reporting um, especially for the audience who always rely on literally these establishments to um, to get their football information and to get their football news from i think whatever you do in life whether it's in relationships, professional, personal, your job, I think trust is key. And I think you can lose trust very quickly. It takes a long time to to, to build up. <clears throat> I wouldn't print something unless I was 100% sure and it's a, you know, double, treble sourced it. I mean, sometimes someone tells you something and you trust in them implicitly and they're right in the middle and you knew they were in the room and then you would you report it. I would always, I would always say, look, do you mind if I have an incident, an issue this week? I said, do you mind if I report that? And if they say no, then 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 then, then fine, you don't. So um, yeah, but then you know what? I, I look at I look at. I mean, I've been doing this since '86, and I look at the quality. It doesn't look like it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, it doesn't look like it. I've just I've just been for a run, so I'm absolutely knackered, and I'm always like this at the end of the season. But the um, but you look at the. Um, you look at the quality of the young reporters coming through now. So that sounds a bit of an old fart comment, but it, they are fantastic. And they are, it, it's a bit like the, the young England players. They're very good at their jobs, but they've also got a broader horizon plus the platform. They want to talk about the issues in Qatar. They want to talk about human rights. They want, as well as the headers and bollies. And I look at them, I look at the quality of the writing, the quality of the thinking, the breadth of platform they've got. Wi-Fi has transformed our business. Um, and I just, I feel really proud as someone who's probably, I don't know, got 10, 15 years left, I don't know, um, to know that actually the industry, for all the question marks thrown at it, that it's actually in a very good place. So if I'm looking specifically at football journalism, because I'm not interested in sports journalism, I, I don't want to write about any other sports, I'm just about football. I yeah. look at the quality of the younger writers coming through, younger reporters coming through, and I just think it's it's fantastic. So I think we're in a good place. I think also people have got over the fact that we're all multi-platform now. So I just think of myself as a football journalist. I don't think of myself as a newspaper journalist, a digital journalist, a social media journalist. I do radio, television. I wrote a film script last year on football. Didn't do particularly well. I've written books, which some of them have done okay. But it's all about the central skill of having a message and delivering that message and having a story and delivering that story, whether that's reflecting a match, reflecting an interview, reflecting an issue. It's, it's still pretty much the same issues. It's just a question of, whether you do it in a 30 word tweet or whether you do it in a 120,000 word book, it's, yep. you know, it's the same element. So, but no, I'm so proud, you know, people like you, that I mean, just, you know, your generation coming through and you're, you're also, you're so technologically savvy and in a fast moving world, you can keep up with that. I mean, I have trouble with my thick thumbs trying to tweet a scoreline, mm. whereas is, so I'm very proud. And I, you know, if I look around the press box now, I look, oh my God, he's good. He's good. He looks about 12 and he's very good. He looks about 13 and he's exceptional. She's fantastic. I think we are becoming more diverse. We're, we're beginning to reflect the sport a little bit better, which has been much needed. And I've, I've seen that change. Uh, and, it, and it's been good because 
if you are a black England footballer and you're sitting at a press conference with 30 middle-aged white guys, I, you're going to open up a bit because we're good interviewers and we've got experience and we can sort of throw the right questions at them. But I think when the media is more diverse, I think the players will open up even more. Yeah. You've seen that quite a lot, especially with the Lionesses as well. So when the Lionesses had their uh, triumph last summer as well, when you've got that diverse kind of social media platform to talk between rather the, I think it's called like, you've got the press box and you've got, no, the press the press room at the end, but you've got social media people coming in to kind of chat with them and they'll open up differently to what you kind of see in a press conference as well. And especially when you see like the England setup as well, when you've got the the players arriving, you've got the players having fun, going to like Nike town and then communicating with different people from different media sources as well. It goes to show that they will open up differently, talk about different things. And it's, they seem more relaxed more than I've ever seen an England squad with how kind of the media has been set up um, differently across the, their kind of camp over like the two weeks that they normally have away from uh, domestic football as well. We've, yeah. we, we, we've been driving that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, so from an England media perspective, because we wanted to break down the barriers. So we've been talking to the FA. Southgate coming in was just absolutely key. He saw what happened with, uh, he went to a Super Bowl. He saw the sort of media day that they have there. He set up in the futsal uh, hall at uh, St. George's Park. This basically everyone sat up Super Bowl style on a desk and we sort of floated around and talked to them. And the players have really opened up. And I think there is a lot of trust. Also, media relations with football teams tend to be good when they're doing well. So yeah. the Lionesses is always going to be a good a, a good story um, and get good press. Ditto with England at the moment. I mean, I'm probably actually one of the biggest critics of Southgate. I mean, I, I look around the room and everyone's been really nice. And I go, well, so why didn't you make those tactical changes? Why, when you've got probably the greatest generation of England footballers ever in terms of quality and particularly depth, you know, this this team should be winning a trophy so and and Southgate has to has to get that right, but absolutely Southgate's been so important in terms of uh, breaking down those barriers because ultimately we're just conduits to to the um, to the supporters. We yep. get their message through, and the players have their platform. The players have you know the influence will come in. But I tell you what, if if a player has got a, a community event and they want it covered in depth, uh, they'll go to the Telegraph. They'll go to the Times. They'll go to the Independent, the Guardian, the Mail, maybe one or two other papers that go to the Athletic. Um, so yeah, so absolutely, that is. A, I think actually the media is in a very good place at the moment. Yeah, no, it's really nice to see, and it's it's like you kind of said as well, it's represented differently as well, which is really nice to see. Where you're seeing people talking about, for me being a, uh, a Muslim person as well, people talk about Ramadan so openly in the BBC, in the Times, in the Athletic as well, which is great to see. Um, we're seeing people talk about literally how people just work differently with different people. And it's really nice to see how that's become such a big thing in terms of, I think there's a, there's a, a podcast I was listening to with Carl Anker going on about how when he first started in football media, it was like, oh, because I'm a black journalist and I'm getting turned away from the media section because they're not used to seeing a black person representing. Like, that, I'm sorry, I cannot believe that happened. Yeah, I think it's Southampton, I think, something like that which was crazy, he said. I mean, I, I'm well, that's shocking if that happened because yeah. that is, I mean, Carl's, that would have been in the last 10 years and mm. I, I will be, if you'd said that had happened 25 years ago, I possibly could have believed that, but yeah. I would have been, you know, I, I would say that the press box has been far more 
welcoming, far more open. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole sort of Muslim element, I mean, I write a fair bit about it because my brother's a very famous imam. And if I walk into a football match, I will get fans coming up to me saying, you know, your stuff's terrible, but your brother is one of the most amazing men. Can you get him on social media? Because there are all these social media sites dedicated to my brother. Yeah. So I've written a lot about sort of, well, not a lot, but I've sort of talked about possibly in a different perspective to many journalists because of my brother. Um, but what's been very interesting is you mentioned Ramadan and the breaks in play. People are now sort of completely understanding now that if someone is is on is on Ramadan and obviously at that time of year when it, it gets darker later and it's it's an issue in the first half of games. So and then going to uh, you know Qatar as well and see that. I mean, I tweeted England's first training session, and I've always, as a son of an architect, and with my brother being who he is, I've spent a lot of my early years going around mosques all around the world, and I, I find mosques incredibly beautiful. And also, as a former choir boy, um, I love the acoustics. Yep. So when the uh, the call to prayer was in. Um, was being played. It just coincided with the 15 minutes we were allowed to watch and record of England's first training session. And I just thought this is a perfect way of capturing England's first training session in Qatar, in a Muslim country. And I tweeted it. And it was very interesting because initially it was people going, are you being disrespectful or there was a little bit of Islamophobia? And why are you doing this? And everyone in that normal tribal social media. But within about 10 minutes, people say, well, you do know who his brother is, by the way. Um, and then people having actually a really intelligent conversation. And I actually kind of, it was like a fight was breaking out in a room next door. But mm. actually it then calmed down and everyone actually had a really intelligent conversation. Because I didn't, I mean, look, we know there's all racist, there's Islamophobias, uh, there's so many issues in this country. But essentially, I think the majority of people are actually quite decent people and quite respectful of other people once initial barriers get broken down. And I think that's what happened in that with that particular tweet, which then, rather nicely, and it certainly wasn't my intention, it did actually go viral. Yeah. I showed that to my parents as well. I was like, yeah, it's England's first training camp in a, in a Muslim country, basically, in a World Cup. And then they were just there like, yeah, it's... It's just perfectly fine, isn't it? Because it's like they can't control what's happening at a local mosque nearby. It's what's happening when you're recording the video. It's, it's perfectly fine. But a lot yeah. of people they they want to they want to take offence when it's not. There's nothing really offensive in there. So it's one of those things when people are like, "Oh yeah, you, sh you shouldn't be recording that." But I'm like, yeah. when you when you go around the world and you go to like a different mosque for you in Istanbul, for example, multiple mosques on multiple streets, you'd have heard that all the time. So you'd have heard that consistently around when you're going to cover the Champions League final so there's nothing there's nothing you could do to kind of be like oh we can't mute it for the sake of muting it it's just what happens but, is, but, but really also do. I'm not particularly religious I was born up an Anglican I was confirmed in Westminster Abbey mm. but actually but but for me it's the beauty obviously respect for the religion and that the, I understand I respect the Quran um but but for me it is the actual the beauty of the music yeah. I move when I hear that, you know, the call to prayer. I just find it, it just, incri I find it very haunting. I mean, my brother's, as I say, is an imam and he's, he preaches, it, well, he's got his own mosque now in Cambridge, but he preaches in, in I visited him in, I visited him in Cambridge as well. Oh, have in, you? Good. In January. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. I hope yeah. he was nice. Was he helpful? He was lovely. Yeah. Um, it good. was one, cause in that mosque in Cambridge as well, you've got like a, like a cafe, you've got like a, a welcome center as well. 
and I went and I went in there with my wife. It was actually our wedding anniversary. We went kind of showing um, off my anniversary date there. But yeah, we went we went for our anniversary um, before we headed somewhere else um, for dinner, I think. But we went there. I met him, had a chat with him. But he was very he was very welcoming. But the fact that he had so many people around him trying to talk to him as well. It was just one of those things that we had a good kind of minute conversation. It was a lovely guy to speak to as well. And um, honestly, fantastic person. I think, I think it's in the Winter family, I must say, having two fantastic people, just <laughs> lovely no, people to chat to as well. <laughs> he's the, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the moody, thick one. He's, but no, he's I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you you're moody at all, definitely. Yeah, not. yeah, no, I am. He's, uh, no, but he's, he's, he's great. I'm so, so proud of him. And it's lovely, you know, just hearing your, your, your words there. I mean, it's, you know, it is, it is, you know, it makes me you know, even proud of him. I mean, you know, he's Tim to me. I know he's this great intellectual, this great scholar and this great sort of movement, but he's just, you know, there's something amazingly, um, yeah, special about him. And what is, what is nice is that, you know, that when there are um, Arab leaders who come to the UK, because of Tim speaks all these languages, because he's, he's a little bit establishment because he's Westminster and Cambridge. Um, but he's also, he's because he was at the Al-Azhar because he sort of traveled around because he's so known in the Muslim communities around the world. Actually, he's a good bridge between, uh, the communities of an Arab leaders coming over and, and Westminster and Whitehall and Tim's, I'm sure Tim's in the background sort of advising and helping. So yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's still Tim to me. Um, but he's, you know, and he's got fantastic, fantastic fantastic families daughters just got married and they're 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 just yeah they're lovely yeah good people so they're very proud of very proud of tim as i am of my sister who's probably more talented than the three of us actually in terms of uh she's a fantastic artist so uh yeah it's um yeah i'm definitely third in the pecking order of the kids definitely third but you're probably the most known to a certain group of people in this country as well which is crazy is your um yeah. is your family dinners quite competitive? Oh, what have you been up to, Henry? Oh, I've been to the Champions League <laughs> final. Oh, what did you do? I'm, I met this leader from um from Saudi Arabia. What did you do? I painted and I got like first in this competition in Europe. That must be crazy having these families. Do you know we don't meet our parents pass away, but we don't meet up as regular as we should do. But I, uh-huh. you know, even even from afar, I'm just so so uh, so proud of them. And you know that's that's credit to our parents who just basically provided a platform and said do what you want to do in life but as long as you do it 100 percent with passion with conviction and it comes from the heart and the soul as well as from the head um and and tim sheikh abdul hakim Malad, he's, he's i don't quite understand it but his name keeps on getting longer and longer adding different be, names yeah, yeah i don't know adding different names and different thing. different titles as well um so it's like yeah. it, dep- it depends on like what you kind of qualified for and what you've kind of been um, accomplished as well um which is which is one of the things that one of the things because he completed the quran um like he's learned the quran in, in detail that's another name on it as well which is crazy so it shows how popular and how long his passport will be at the end of the day which is crazy yeah well i, I know he's on the hajj four times yeah which is which is which is impressive um but no i think he's a you know he's a great ambassador um yeah and he look Ultimately, for me, he's a great brother. Definitely. That's a a really good way of ending this podcast as well. One last question from me, Henry, before we wrap it up. What's your plan for the summer before the Premier League restarts um, back in August? Any plans in particular? Anything fun planned? 
I love the way people say, oh, you must be about to sort of, you know, sit in a hammock now for five weeks. I mean, I've got another three weeks of the football season. You know, we've got, you mentioned North Macedonia. We've got Malta going to Malta. Uh, they've eventually got England training tomorrow, 12 yep. o'clock, St. George's Park, then Ooh. seeing the players afterwards. So, yeah, loads of, um, it's, it's the sport that never sleeps. Can you get me into St. George's Park? I'm not too far from it, the training. Just, just apply to the FA. Yeah, I need to. I, I'll ask you after the podcast how to do that because yeah, I, yeah, I, I want to get I want to get involved in that. It looks quite fun because living in where I am now, it's not too far from um, Litchfield. I think where St George's Park is, yeah, near, yeah. which would be quite good. Um, but no, Henry, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on my podcast and learning from you and listening to your amazing stories. Um, it's been great to have you and great to talk to you again, which would be good fun. Hopefully, another time later this summer, I'd like to see you again, which would be good fun. I'll be down in down in the south again a few times more, which would be good fun. Um, but yeah, any one last message from you to anyone listening in terms of how to get into football media. What one thing? What one word of advice to anyone listening to get into football media? There are two rules in life. Work hard and be nice to people. Yeah. Simple as that. I mean, just work hard. The door will open. You know, I went into football the well months after the high school disaster. No one wanted to, no one wanted to be a football journalist. No one was really recruiting. It was a grim stage. Now there are many avenues in social media, blog, blog all the time, do things like this that you're doing. So it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, contact sports editors, you know, create your own platform. You've got so many different platforms now, so many different technologies that you can use um, to sort of to, to, to get in and just to show you're good. I mean, I occasionally get sent CVs. I very rarely look at CVs because I can tell within two, three sentences of a personal statement or of a blog whether someone's got it. Yeah. So just work on those. Just keep writing, keep writing, keep filming, keep producing content, whether it's TikTok, whether it's you know, Instagram, less so, uh, whether it's Twitter, blogs, you know, podcasts, everything. Just keep producing those and the, the door will open because it's more, it's a very meritocratic industry. If you're good, you'll get in. Yep. Perfect advice. But everyone, thank you very much for listening. Henry Winter, it's an absolute pleasure um, speaking with you today. And yeah, our podcast will be out on Friday as always. Everyone, thank you very much for your time. Take care and I'll see you later.